0: This is like an ancient black woman proverb. Uh, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Fuck it, I'll build it. Mm. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm going to Twitter again.
1: No, I stop. From Topic and Earwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm America's side chick,
2: Hari Kondabolu. I, I don't even, I don't really know what that means, Kamau. Uh, ask Kevin Hart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Kevin Hart. <laughs> in case we wanted him as a guest, <laughs>
1: <laughs> he knows what he knows what he trended for. <laughs> the show where two comedians try to make sense of politics in America, or die
2: trying. Actually, actually, no, I refuse to die trying to do that ridiculous thing.
1: We are not going to make sense of it. I'm not going to die trying. We're never going to die. Today, we settle some family business. A few weeks ago, we had a good interview with CNN's Jake Tapper, all ready to go. Hurry! how come we didn't air that? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. It's a standard Twitter shit show. But today, we're going to release the interview that some of you thought we'd never be brave enough to air. We see you, Twitter. Yeah.
2: But despite that... Our conversation with Jake was pretty fantastic, you know. It was really fun and informative. And Jake is one of the few members
1: of the mainstream media who's actually taking it to the Trump administration. And for those of you in our audience who are like, are you really going to make me listen to a white man? And we know you're out there. We got Jessica Bird, a black woman. And if any of you in our audience are like, oh, you're going to make me listen to a black
2: woman, get out. <laughs> you are not invited to this party. Why are you here? <laughs> Alex Jones is just a few knobs down on the dial. God, that would be shocking. It's like, <laughs> oh, another black woman. Come on, hurry. What are you getting
3: David Duke on already?
1: With that voice for some reason. Jessica Bird is the People's Choice guest for Politically Reactive. We first learned about Jessica's work from our interview with Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn colors We'll talk to Jessica about shaking up the makeup of legislative bodies. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive.
3: Hello? Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> you know what's up. Why are you asking me that ridiculous question? It's the end of the goddamn world. What's uh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Just, you know,
1: just Tuesday, President Trump said, North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. You know, our president basically threatening nuclear apocalypse.
3: What's up, man? Best not? Best not.
1: Best not clearly lets us know that one of Trump's nannies was an 80-year-old black woman.
3: (laughs) Am I allowed to laugh at that? (laughs)
1: Yes, that's, a, that's, a, that's an old black lady. You best not, boy, you best not. That's a yeah. Clearly they had a Southern black nanny for Trump when he was a, when he was a young pop.
3: I called my mom yesterday, just about North Korea. I'm like, hey, well, what do you think about this whole, you know, nuclear war business? And we both just started hysterically laughing. Because, like, what else are you supposed to do? Like, there's nothing else. But then I'm, then I, before I left, I'm like, all right, Mom, I'm going to get a piece of cake. And she's like, I don't want this nuclear war business to make you break your diet. <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which is even, even till the bitter end, she's my mother. Yeah.
1: I mean, let's be clear. Kim Jong-un, he checks all the boxes for dictator. You know, he, he would be a very good uh, James Bond villain, but like in the 80s Timothy Dalton era. On a global scale, he's like the guy in your neighborhood. That's like that guy. You all, we all stay away from that guy. <laughs> just we all walk around. Him. <laughs> like, like we just, we just like, yeah, he's yeah. That guy's. He might hit you. He might spit on you. He might, you know, you just, we just all agree to walk around that guy and let him do his thing. And Donald Trump, President Trump, forty-five, Orange Julius is walking directly at that guy.
3: I mean, my assumption is he has the rocket ship to Mars ready to go. There's no other. Thing <laughs> Why you would risk this.
1: All right. Well, uh, let's get to the show today.
3: Who's our first guest? Our first guest is uh, Jessica Bird. Oh, cool. Hold on. Let me go to the good mic.
1: Our first guest today is Jessica Bird. She's the founder of Three Point Strategies, a D.C.-based political consulting firm helping people of color get elected to public office. Usually the Democrats, I'm guessing. Jessica has worked on political campaigns in more than 40
2: states. Her work has focused on creating pathways for underrepresented communities to engage
1: in the political process. She is completely inspiring all the way through and makes me again want to try to start to believe in the Democrats. But anyway, let's get into it.
3: This interview was recorded May 26th, the birthday of John Wayne, Miles Davis, and Lauren Hill. They have the same birthday. Who knew?
1: Thank you for coming. The people have demanded it. You're the people's choice for Politically Reactive. We really appreciate the fact that you're here.
0: Oh my gosh! Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a huge, huge fan, and I'm not just saying that. Um, I listened to your podcast, and I have uh, ever since the beginning. So, and the fact that I'm also here being called the People's Choice is like pretty much the the whole point of what I'm trying to do. So, thank you so much.
1: <laughs> well, we'll just re- leap right into that. Uh, why is that the point of what you're trying to do? How how do you describe the work that you do?
0: Mm. I'm building the electoral political firm of the movement, and. You know, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I've been pretty addicted to campaigns for the last 13 years and have worked on campaigns in 43 states across the country. And I would say for the first 10 of those years, I did... You know, it was a pretty Democratic route. I was working um, my very first job was for the Democratic Party in Ohio, where I'm from, and moved on to work for state legislature or state legislative candidates. And, um, you know, President Obama, when he was running, went on to spend four years at EMILY's List. And it was really in 2014 and then I started to ask myself whether I was doing my work unapologetically enough um, as the movement for black lives and as social justice movements were really just burgeoning around us. And I felt like we were in this incredible political renaissance. I didn't feel like my contribution of just beating Republicans was actually changing material conditions for people of color in this country and, and most particularly black people. And so I couldn't find a job that I felt like really lived at the intersection of racial justice and electoral politics. And I decided that my skill set that I'd been working on for a decade was electoral work and winning elections. and so that's what my contribution to this movement is right now is to engage in elections where activists care about that particular seat with candidates who are bold, who aren't afraid to talk about race, and where we can win and change policy for, for our families.
2: Well, I mean, that being said, like what obstacles do women and people of color face when running? We're, we're asking the dumbest
1: questions possible. <laughs> yep, yep.
0: <laughs> it's, it's actually incredible how much we don't know about this. And it's it's also not our fault. So one of the first projects that I took on when I started out on my own was in partnership with an incredible organization called the Women Donors Network. And they, ha- they led a campaign called the, Refle- the Reflective Democracy Campaign. And it essentially was a mapping of every single elected leadership seat across the country by race and by gender. There are over 50,000 elected seats across the country. That people are like, you know, I look at elections as like you're applying for a job, and people are voting for whether you're you're qualified, whether you're the right pick. And so there are fifty thousand jobs as elected office holders in this country. When a mapping is done of our demographics, we have nineteen um, percent uh, men of color, nineteen percent women of color. We have. Um, what is it, 32 percent white women, 32 percent white men, when you take a look at the map of who leads our country, 90 percent of elected leaders are white, 65 percent of elected leaders are men. And so that means that white men have four times the amount of, of elected political power as any other demographic in this country. The reason why that's important in kind of answering your question is that so often especially in DC rooms, you will hear people when asked, what are the barriers? Why don't we have more people of color and women? And they're like, well, you know, we just need to train more of them. You know, actually, we're just not asking them enough. Women of color, it takes seven times, it takes eight times to ask them to run for office before they say yes. And I used to wonder why that didn't sit right with me, that it was like We were blaming the victim in some way, like there was something programmed wrong in underrepresented groups that we couldn't respond to wanting political power. Well, in working with the Reflective Democracy campaign and in doing interviews with organizations and with leaders across the country, it became very clear that, in fact, what's in the path of um, underrepresented communities isn't just that they don't care about power, that they're not ambitious. It's structural barriers, so structural barriers such as the cost of elections, structural barriers like the way that maps are drawn in our redistricting process, structural barriers like the fact that many elected leaders are are getting paid $19,000 a year to run for office. You know, in the New Hampshire legislature, they hand you a $100 check when you're sworn in. It's a volunteer job. That is a structural barrier, and that keeps a very particular wow. type of person running for office and being able to hold elected office because they have some sort of either monetary or community support. And then one thing which I hope that, you know, we'll get into even more is gatekeepers. I've been talking about this everywhere I go because it's such a huge barrier in getting new types of leaders elected. There are people within our parties, there are people um, who currently hold elected power, there are people in our political institutions, whose entire job are to protect the status quo and the people who currently serve. And so what they do is they're the ones, when you hear these mythical stories about Who's telling the, the the people to wait in line? It's gatekeepers, and gatekeepers are saying it's not your turn. You're not viable. You haven't raised enough money. You're too progressive. You're too black. You're you're too queer. You're too much of a you know all the stuff. And so my job really is to just shake those gatekeepers up and to let them know that like when we win, we're we be, we're becoming uh, the people who get to say who, who leads our communities.
2: Who are the gatekeepers?
0: So this question is is fun. Because it's a lot of people we really like and especially um, other progressive type people. It's people who when you, they sit at a desk, their job or a part of their job is to protect who is currently in power or to work in a very specific way that is the easiest to gain power. And so I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate I'm a registered Democrat, so I'll just kind of put that out there. It is not that I think the Democratic Party is inherently flawed, but I do have a a lot of very real critiques for the party. One of those critiques is that the, the entire job of the party is to protect incumbents who are already serving or to flip seats from D to R, which means they're only looking for the lowest hanging fruit of a candidate. So the person who makes the most sense for the blueprint of who could beat a Republican. So who is that typically? Other white people, uh, upper middle class people who have the money to either self-finance or immediately tap into very traditional fundraising circles, people who have profiles that make sense to them, people who are the son of a son of a, of someone else who was elected. And that's a problem. Does it mean that they're intentionally throwing boulders in the path of new types of leaders? Mm, not necessarily. But when you say that the best person for a job is always the same type of person, and in particular, uh, the the same profile of a person who's always led before, then you have now, you're protecting a gate of power and um, becoming a barrier for people who are underrepresented and who this really this system wasn't built for. We don't have an imagination around what's possible because we are locked in these very clear silos that are both systemically real, as in parties, you know, we have these two parties. And to think that we can fit the diversity of any of our communities into two distinct buckets is just also limiting. But then also we have all of the ways in which society has told us who gets to lead and who doesn't, who has power, who doesn't, who is an innovator, who's a strategist and who isn't. And so, so many times I am in D.C. having conversations about some incredible local candidate who is just Opening the hearts and the minds of the people in their community, their community recruited, Um, people are excited about them. And I'm in a D.C. room and I'd say why this race is so viable, why we can win, even though they're unlike any person who's led in in that place before. People will literally say, like, I don't get it. I don't understand why difference is good. Like it just it is almost like muscle memory around political power in this country needs to be completely re-exercised. Like, we need to change the muscle memory of who people believe deserve to serve us.
1: Wow, 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 wow.
2: When you're looking for candidates to work with, like, what makes the ideal candidate? Like, let's say a a young Indian American man wanted to run for office in, like, Seattle. (laughs) Like, how should that hypothetical person prepare? What kind of accomplishments and experiences should that person have for you to want to work? should with them? ten years
1: is ten years in comedy clubs a good experience to run for office in Seattle is what he's really asking.
0: <laughs> when I think about all the clowns that are and all the mediocre white men who are running across the country, there's no way you're not more qualified than men, my friend. <laughs> Which is why it's so funny when people will say like, but she didn't raise enough money. And it's like of all the mediocre white candidates across the country and y'all are like, now we've got to be perfect. Like, okay, girl. Um, But to get to your question. So for me and in building the electoral form of the movement or in serving the movement, um, the number one qualification for me is if you're connected to people In your community, it is not enough for you to have a profile and a strategy and like the drive to win. I want to know that the community knows that you love and care about them and that you will take you know, the vision of them and their families into whatever chamber you're working in, into whatever legislative and elected body. So that's, for me, like, number one. And and the way that I do my work now is many times candidates will reach will reach out to me. And the first thing I do is to call an activist or a movement person in that city and say, hey, I just got a call. They seem really exciting. I love talking to them. And yeah, I go back to them. and And, and this is also, I mean— the way we transform our communities and i'm not i'm not the know all of this but it feels to me that the way we transform our communities is by a marriage of activism good elected leadership and transformative public policy and we don't get those when they're not In concert. So, if we have this incredible activism happening that in no way is connected to the elected leaders that are being elected, and then elected leaders aren't creating transformative public policy because they're not connected to activists and what activists want, then of course we're always just mad at the system all the time. And so, and the way that I measure whether to work with a person or not is based on whether I believe that they're going to go back to activists and help to carry their water because activists do so much of the civic engagement that changes our communities. But then also just like on the nitty gritty, the way that I think about this, especially when recruiting um, and and many times in whether I'm going to take on a candidate is – There are two buckets. There are the must-haves and there are the nice-to-haves. The must-have is you got to have integrity. You got to not be a liar. You got to love the people. You have to have some sort of analysis around the way that like, um, you know, money and jobs and, um, you know, public policy is happening in your community. Kind of the basic knowledge. And a nice-to-have is like, it would be nice if a person had a fundraising strategy that was connected to millionaires. Like, that would be nice. It would be nice if a person had run before and had some sort of electoral experience. It would be nice... Right. What what What's the problem, though, is in D.C., they start with the nice to have. Oh. oh, you've never run a campaign before. Oh, wait, you don't know, you know, legislative bill H.B. 28 back and forth like must not be a political person. And it's like. You're racist. You're classist, and 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 that is outside of our analysis right now because we're like, no, no, no. We're just trying to win. It's like, yeah, by enacting racist, you know, racist policies. That honestly, if you were to ask in a job um, interview, might actually be illegal.
2: It sounds like you're saying that the institutional issues that we have around the country that prevent people of color and women from gaining power are this similar to the issues that are happening with regards to like getting people in elected office. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 Interesting.
0: Ding. Right. I mean, I don't have easy answers for this. I I think that it is going to every race, every place is different. The politics of every region is different. So I don't have, you know, some sort of prescription for everything. My experience, though, is that we are not being innovative enough and we're not changing our formulas as fast as the people in our country are changing. And so the the demographic shift of this country is not just an interesting talking point to think about how you know white people care about it. It is to say, as the demographics of this country have exploded and changed in the last 50 years, what do our people need? And if you are a progressive or a Democrat who believes that their party is one that holds all of those people, and it does... Then the people need for you to change your formula around the way that you engage them. The people need for you to elect leaders who look like them. People need for you to like invoke their their lived experiences into public policy. It also is just so frustrating because it's like this moral and like justice question that is the fucking right thing to do to create the most inclusive practices when engaging in politics because it's supposed to be representative. But it's also the most winningest thing to do. We win more when more people are at the table. It's just
1: so. So, first of all, I agree with all that, and I like the fact that you uh, said fucking again. That means you're more comfortable, so I appreciate that. that <laughs> Uh, so my question is, but what do you say to people on the on the left? And I'm specifically talking about the activists and the the militant left, the militant people of color left, who are like, we just need to give up on the Democratic Party. Why are we fighting? to get them to do the right thing you know we've had rosa clemente on the show and she's a green party member and she's like we need to like let go of the dream of the democratic party and even white people white republicans sort of say to to black people why are you still in love with the democratic party like the alt-right says that about black people is there what do you say to people like we need to give up on the on the democratic party
0: well, fuck the alt right. <laughs> they don't get to say shit to black people. So well, that's, yeah. that's okay. There. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I hear you, and I I listen to the Rosa Clemente, and I, I'm I'm a fan of her like writing, and 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 you know I, I know lots of folks who are in deep relationship with her. Um, I led a campaign in 2016 called Democracy in Color campaign with author Steve Phillips um, that was really intended to call publicly call the this question around whether the Democrats could build an inclusive party. At the same time, um, and, and so let me let me clarify why that felt important to me to do. I knew the level of harm that is possible when we don't engage at the national level in the presidential and U.S. Senate races, U.S. congressional races, et cetera. And so for me, knowing that there was a possibility that we could lose at the national level felt like it was worth the harm reduction to our communities to figure out how we can get as many people to the table as, as possible in the Democratic Party. At the same time, I believe that young people, people of color are not only dismayed by the way that the Democrats are leading, but also are just choosing not to be institutional type members. We no longer, like, Go to the NAACP and say, give me a card that I can carry around and go to a meeting in this particular way. Like we don't – that's not how we're organized anymore. And so I also think that like as people are making a choice to just – to not be engaged with the Democrats, it doesn't mean that power isn't being built and that we can't still win. I've been working over, uh, you know, the the last few years as I've been engaging in this intersection of racial justice and electoral strategy with move, the movement for black lives, who are, are my heroes, who I feel like have created. And one of the reasons why it was such an honor for Patrice to shout me out is that I have tried to be very clear with them that electoral politics can be used to or utilized to move forward policies that really allow our people to lead really meaningful and vibrant lives. And that means for us that we should build a Black political base, not because the Democrats deserve it, but because Black people deserve it, because people of color deserve to be engaged, because by creating an electoral strategy where people see themselves, that's good for democracy. And I'm at the point now where I'm like... yeah, I, I want the party to be good because it's helpful and I want to be building power because building power is good for the people in our communities. And And I believe that when people are engaged where they are and that someone has talked to them, someone has facilitated an opportunity for them to be connected to their democracy, that that is better for all of us. And so I, for me, this is a both and question. They need to get their shit together and – we need to always be building because our people deserve it.
2: Also, I feel like implicit in what you're saying, too, is like it, it's not enough for the candidate to be a woman or a person of color. Right. Like that's, you know, like let, let's say uh, you were uh, an Indian American Christian in a southern state uh, who happened to become governor uh, at some point. <laughs> and let's say uh, for the sake we'll call him Bobby Jindal Berg. <laughs> <Like>, it. Bur- <laughs> it you know, that's not enough. It's as as the the visuals, the optics might look okay initially, like, well, look at that guy in that position. That's not enough because it comes down to what are the issues.
0: That's right. Exactly right. You know, there have been times I've sat in front of candidates who I've just asked plainly, do you love black people? Whoa, wow. 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 For the
1: record, I love black people. Player, I'm not a candidate, but I just want to let Jessica Bird know I love black people. I also love
0: black people. <laughs> Thank you. And when you're demonstrating that and this is the thing, right? Like you have a record of that by having all of these dynamic conversations about the ways in which black people are leading in our communities. Um, and I actually think that the fact that there are people who tremble at that is, um, is part of what I'm testing right now. Why are we afraid to say that it is worthwhile for our elected bodies to center and care about marginalized communities? Like, why are people scared of that? Why is that controversial? It's very confusing to me. And to say that, like, people deserve food— People deserve to not be criminalized because of the color of their skin. That, like, People deserve to be able to go to the doctor and be taken care of because they're human beings and human beings deserve to be alive. And being alive means needing care and being alive means having food. It's almost so simple that it's complex. And I think one of the reasons why I haven't given up on elections is because the look on people's faces— when they see a candidate who can answer, do you love black people? And they know that that answer is yes. I just, I will die fighting for that feeling.
1: Wow. I feel like I want to tweet that right now, but uh, let's <laughs> continue the interview. <laughs> let's let's continue the interview before I tweet that out. Isn't part of the reason that women and people of color don't run is because the things that we're going to be put through if we run and especially if we win Are so different than what white male candidates are put through so that that the level of scrutiny will be put under. I mean, you know, birtherism versus like a dude who won't show us his tax returns and is leaking secrets and is pushing official pushing other world leaders out of the way to get in the center of the photo. That, that, like, who would want to subject themselves to that as a, as a person of color or a woman when you're living that life, or a person of color and a woman, when you're living that life every day?
0: Right. You're like, look, I, I like, work in an office, and I'm, like, getting pulled yes. over, you know, just on my way to work. Yes. Why the heck would I want to? I yes. mean, it's real. Yes. I mean, there, are, there actually have been some times when I felt guilty, about oh. looking the candidate that I, you know, love so much in the eye and knowing that they're getting, you know, the shit kicked out of them. Um, these are really special humans. Like candidates, I think one of the most brave things that a person can do, not because it changes everything, but because it's so brave to put your name on a ballot Especially as a person of color, uh, as as a you know black woman who doesn't ch- mm. get to say pick me, and so the fact that candidates will will say no, it's me, choose me. I think especially for marginalized people is just so brave and so exciting. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I've actually never worked with a black woman candidate who hasn't been beaten up in the media about their attitude. The thing here, right, and in many ways, I've been pissed at 45's exploitation of fake news because truly... Um, people of color and black candidates at the local level are experiencing media gatekeepers like no other. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so excited about podcasting because it's such a democratization of media and gets to say who can tell our stories and who doesn't. And so, you know, in many of my new campaigns, we have like a podcast strategy <laughs> because it is in in some ways even better news than the way that local newspapers will report on them. So when we're experiencing gatekeepers, though... This is why the community is so important. Think about how Barack Obama was behaving in his last term. He was literally saying to people, if I wanted mm. to, I could get elected a third mm. time. Do you think that Michelle Obama cared that um people were calling her fat? I mean, even 8 years in, we're putting, you know, pictures of gorillas on top of her head in like these horrible right-wing articles? No. We when she walked off any stage in America, We were looking at her and like, we got you. Mm. They come for you. They come for us. And that's what I'm trying to build by engaging in movement politics. People will be more bold. They'll be more uh, progressive. They'll be more willing to talk about the issues that we care about when we are waiting for them when they get off stage. When we let people um, put their name on a ballot and then we leave them to the wolves of, you know, what the mainstream politics is, then of course they're going to not only disappoint us, but go away. And so we have to be there um, connecting the dots for why it's important that they exist.
2: I really love how you, you build this bridge between uh, activism and and mainstream politics in a way that you don't really see very often. And you're currently working with uh, several Black-led activist organizations, the Movement for Black Lives on uh civic engagement strategies towards twenty twenty you know what to you, what is the significance of this work?
0: yeah, it's why I had to create my own job to be right. honest with you. <laughs> I started to interview for jobs that I thought were this and wasn't, and I'm like, well, fuck it <laughs> 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 I guess i'll build I there guess I'll go. build something right and there's like this is like an ancient black woman proverb uh it doesn't <laughs> exist. Fuck it, I'll build it. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm going to Twitter again. So um, working with the Movement for Black Lives is a great honor because black people are there. And what we haven't been able to do in this country is to catalyze and grow a black base in a way that is consistent and also engages in midterm and local elections in the way that they engage in the presidential elections. And so for me, in working with activist organizations, you know, the candidates are are an awesome bonus, especially when we find ones that folks are really excited about. Like, you know, Tashara Jones, who ran in St. Louis, um, Missouri for mayor, like Yvette Simpson, who's running in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, like Chokwe Lamumba, who uh, just won a, a primary in Jackson, Mississippi. Like, those are such exciting bonus stories. Hold up, wait a minute.
2: We want to give you an update on all those names Jessica just dropped. Running for St. Louis mayor, Tashara Jones is a Black Lives Matter advocate who said we need to promote policies that make everyone rise, not just those in wealthy zip codes. Jones didn't win, but she still is the city's treasurer. And as Jessica said, experience running an election only helps. So hopefully we'll see Jones' hat in a race sometime soon.
1: Through a strong grassroots campaign, Yvette Simpson won the primary election in May for mayor of Cincinnati. Now, she still has to face off with the incumbent mayor in November, but she is seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party. Yvette, we're looking at you.
2: Shokwe Antar Lumumba is a progressive attorney and activist who won the mayoral vote in Jackson, Mississippi. Lumumba ran on investing more in education, a 1% sales tax to fix the city's
1: aging infrastructure, and employing community engagement to tackle crime. Those are just three of the many people that Jessica is currently working with to change the face of the Democratic Party. And it sure could use a face change. I like the old black one. She's giving the Democratic Party a tan.
0: For me, the North Star of working with movement people is that we become the trusted messengers to black people about politics in this country. We say, we love you first. We're going to connect you with political opportunities that we believe bring value to your life. We're gonna educate you on the ways that you can be engaged. And we're also gonna fight like hell for your life. And so having all of that in one place, uh, for me, just feels like the most powerful way to be organizing and communicating with Black people. Um, and also, it represents the politics that I care about. i don't I don't think in twenty seventeen that we can be allowed to talk about the uh, white working class divorced from black people anymore. I think that that is ridiculous, and I'm unwilling to do that. And I want to be working with organizations who are intersectional and thinking about all of our identities, um, you know, I- I aligned with each other
2: this This last question we have for you, I think connects to the idea of not being. Uh, overly idealistic, (laughs) but do you think we're entering a new era where we'll see more celebrities running? Dwayne The Rock Johnson talked about running for president on Fallon. You know, what are your thoughts on our obsession with, like, personality over political experience and accomplishment like
1: is this is are, are we already on that slippery and also slope? my i would like to add in that like is it actually something that we on the left should be like you know what he would probably win let's just get the right pe-. like should we just make sure that you're in the room with him like to make sure that like <laughs> make sure that like
0: okay i just want to give a disclaimer before i give my answer that if oprah or beyonce approach uh, me <laughs> well, this does not apply to you um <laughs> We're we're obsessed with personality, um, because it once again fits into this like charismatic white male leader that we understand. And I would even say now that we've had Barack Obama, this is happening in black spaces too. That it's like you know cis heterosexual white men, uh, you know perfect marriage type nuclear family who has, speaks in a very particular way. Like that is privilege now. Over other ways that black people are, right? Um and I don't think that it's not good for us because that would that would say that celebrities in some way don't have any capacity to know or understand anything other than like the thing that they're a celebrity for. But I do think that it once again speaks to the the way that we feed this. System that says that only a certain type of person should have power and that person should have money They should have access They should be well-known and if I were to ask, you know, some of these celebrities like do you love black people? Do you who are your who are your people in your community? Who are you fighting for? What are their names? Where do they live? Where do they work? What do they need? What keeps them up at night? If they don't know the answer to that question, then they're not qualified just as anybody else isn't qualified and so, you know, we have to demand more of the people who believe that they should represent us. Like, they got to know us. And so if a celebrity feels like they know us and they're living there and they're reflecting their community, then shoot, let's let's get it. But if not, it's just unacceptable that we continue to take face value in in. You know when our when our people. Need I mean, to so be much. fair,
2: The Rock is the
1: people's champion. <laughs> no, you're you're he's the, he was the people's champ a long time ago. You're the people's choice. There's a difference. There's a difference. Uh, what real quick? I just want to be clear. Are you are you counting The Rock as a white man? <laughs> no, sorry, no, I'm not. <laughs> Okay, I just want—I just didn't want you to have those Twitter problems. I just wanted to be—I just wanted you—you've <laughs> done such a good job. I didn't want people like assuming that you thought the rock was a white man. But uh, yeah, so... no,
0: I am not. Actually, no. Okay. <laughs>
1: I think that's a perfect place to leave it. First of all, thank you for coming on the show. This has been more than we were promised it was going to be by Patrice Colors. Shout out to Patrice Con Colors for shouting you out and 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 the people demanding that you show up. Uh, you this interview has been great and you 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 both give me hope and also let me know I got a lot of work to do. So thank you for both those things.
0: Thank you. And thank you for in this time where news feels like it is, you know, weaponized against us in some ways. Thank you for bringing it to us in a way that's both authentic and and funny and light. That's been, I, and been Jessica. Good.
2: I'll be reaching out in about a decade, when I'm ready to run. OK,
0: <laughs> don't <laughs> wait so long. <laughs> Structural barriers say the gatekeepers will say that you need to be older, but Hari, you do not. Oh,
2: I'm fine. I mean, I act like a 60 year old man,
1: so I'm already mentally there. Thank you very much, Jessica. We really appreciate having you. Thank you, Jessica.
0: Thank you, guys. Hope to meet you in person.
1: We'll be right back after we take care of some business and some business. All right, back to the show. Our next guest is Jake Tapper. Uh, As you know, he was on the show earlier in season one. Go back and listen to that episode. Great episode. Yeah. It was pre-Trump, and now we got Jake post-Trump. See what he thinks. He's been a reporter covering national politics for more than 15 years. He's also the host of the daily show The Lead with Jake Tapper, which brings you the day's headlines from around the country and world. And every Sunday, he's on State of the Union, where he has longer and deeper conversations with top newsmakers on politics, policy, Washington, D.C., and the world. Let's get to that Jake Tapper interview.
3: This interview was recorded July 17th, David Hasselhoff's birthday. Remember, Knight Rider? I miss Kit. I miss Kit.
1: The last time we were on the show, Jake, it was right after Donald Trump was elected president. At the time, you and many others said we needed to give Trump a chance. Uh, you and Dave Chappelle both shared that. Uh, how's that working out for all of us now? Well, I, you know,
4: I wanted. to... The facts to be established before I drew a conclusion. And I think, you know, after more than six months of his presidency, uh, we have a pretty good idea of how he is governing. And it is pretty close to the same way he ran for president. Very impulsive, a uh, lot of chaos, really playing strongly to his base, rallying uh, Republicans, not being particularly concerned about Democrats or independents. I think it's fair to say violating norms of behavior that we've expected in the past or come to expect from presidents in terms of name calling and social media and and, uh, taking things farther than we've ever seen in battles that presidents have had with the media or with the legislative branch or with the judicial branch. And I think most stunningly, uh, I I think uh, the most stunning thing that he has done, of course, is to to fire the FBI director in the midst of an investigation into whether or not his campaign colluded with an adversarial government. So, um, yeah, I mean, now we have a bunch of facts and uh, we are where we are.
2: I mean, what you just described, Jake, sounds very, very bad. But are things as bad as we think they are? They look really, really bad. What you've described is terrible. But as a journalist who is trying to get information from this White House and who is still trying to do their jobs, is it even worse than we know?
4: I mean, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking at. There are very many ways to look at the Trump presidency. Uh, one of them is to look at the Trump presidency as a Republican presidency, doing things that that any Republican might do such as pushing for tax cuts or pushing deregulation, trying to repeal parts of Obamacare. And, you know, those are things that I think any Republican president would do, whether it's Marco Rubio or, or Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, whomever. Um, that, you know, that's one set of facts that I think um, people of different ideological stripes can debate over and discuss the effectiveness um, Uh, And then there is the other set of facts, which is um, the chaos that I discussed, Um, the way that the travel ban was written um, initially with very little feedback from departments and agencies that would be implementing it. Um, Obviously, uh, its uh, status remains in limbo as it's worked its way up to the Supreme Court, although it's being uh, enacted much of it right now. So I mean that that you know that's that's one set of facts, and then there's the set of facts that that you know deals with you know basic standards of of decency and truth that um, that I think are quite different than if we would have a Marco Rubio or a Jeb Bush as president. The war against uh, anyone that tries to hold the administration accountable, whether it's CNN or NBC or the Washington Post or the New York Times, the judiciary. Or an ethics chief, or whomever. The uh, you know the behavior that we've seen in terms of normalizing, attempting to normalize the uh, a meeting between campaign chieftains and somebody billed as a Russian government lawyer with high level dirt on Hillary Clinton to help Trump get elected and help defeat Hillary Clinton. That's not normal. Um, we see we see an attempt. By the President and it's working to a degree if you looked at polling among Republicans about how anybody would take this meeting and how this is just normal it's just politics it's not it's not normal it's not just politics um, to meet with somebody from an adversarial government or even from a foreign government uh, to uh, discuss this um, this acquisition of opposition research and who knows how it would have been theoretically obtained if it's from the Russian government, one would think it would be not just, hey, I found this in a search of uh, newspapers in the local library, the database, and look at this damning fact from 1982. It's um, theoretically obtained from the FSB, the successor to the KGB. So that's not normal. There's two different sets of facts here. And and I think one of the things that makes this job difficult and also makes um, – commentary from the left about donald trump complicated is how much are people objecting to what he's doing because it's a conservative agenda and how much are people objecting to what he's doing because he is declaring war on facts truth decency
1: etc so that's where we are so uh me and Hari here all the time because we're comedians like oh you it must be a great time to be a comedian because there's so much going on and you know sometimes i feel like well, there's kind of too much going on, and not, and it's all sort of happening too fast to really focus on it sometimes. Like, you, you know, you write a joke at 8 in the morning, it's dead by noon because everybody else has already told it. Do you, as a journalist right now, do you wake up out of bed like, yeah, there's so much happening? Or does it feel like, I wish this was all happening a different way? Like, is this the does this feel an especially great time, or especially like, uh, can we get through this and get back to me just sort of reporting on the news, you know? Well again i mean you know this is an interesting question okay first of all this is me as a journalist right not me
4: as an american i mean as an american i would like i would like there to be less anxiety out there i I would like people to be living more peacefully i'd be like there to be more you know brotherhood etc sisterhood but me as a journalist i mean it's it's never ending i mean it's just it never stops we used to in growing up in philly we had um on the streets of Philly, on, on Carpenter Street, we would open the hydrant sometimes during the summer. We didn't have a pool, uh, you know, and and we would just like run in through the the through the fire hydrant spray. And what was amazing about it was it was just this nonstop, full stream, you know, all and it was just so strong and it would just never stop. And that's what it's like covering. Uh, covering the trumpets,
3: it just ne- it just
4: never stops. And it like you know when you're seven years old and you're like, I can't believe this thing is just like how much water <laughs> exists in the world that this stream will never stop going full bore. Like you know, like if you get close to it, it actually hurts. It's so hard. But that's how that's what it's like covering the trumpet. Distortion. It just never stops. And like, Waste of resources. You, you think you know you? I have a you know I have a call at eight thirty in the morning with my senior staff about what we're going to cover and then we have a meeting at 12 30 and then the shows at four and like god knows what's going to happen in between each one of those things
1: i mean you know there's one thing i want to ask you about because i feel like there's got to be a sense of frustration from journalists overall but certainly you're here because you can talk to us about it there's all these things that happen where you, like you know you have a lot of clips where you talk to people like specifically kelly and conway and there's some sort of like back and forth with you two that will go viral and you can look at people on s- certain media streams where they're like look at Jake Tapper take down Kellyanne Conway and you can look at people from the Fox News side of things or the Breitbart side of things and it's like look at Kellyanne Conway take down Jake Tapper and it's the same clip <laughs> is there frustration and feeling like that you can't break through you know what I mean
4: yeah I mean I've seen uh, interviews I've done that I thought were fairly substantive and respectful I've seen you know, left-wing sites say, you know, Tapper smacks down, blah. And I'm just... <laughs> not a smackdown by any stretch yes. of the imagination. <laughs> um, you don't go to interviews going, I'm about to put the smackdown. No, sort of thing you say no. And, and also, I mean, the other thing is, it is amusing to me to see people... I mean, you may or may not remember, but I was, I was uh, not perceived as the friendliest reporter slash anchor to President Obama. Uh, and you know, there were a number of left-wing sites, liberal sites, progressive sites that thought I was the devil for eight years and, um, (laughs) or, or 10 even because of the two years leading up to the Obama presidency. And, um, because I didn't, you know, I provided critical coverage of him. So it is amusing to see them, uh, you know, declaring my work to be smackdowns um, when, uh, (laughs) you know, generally speaking, their coverage was you know, right wing hack, Jake Tapper, blah, blah, you know, does this, um, yeah. or, or watch, you know, democratic Senator lay the smack down on Tapper. Um, but I mean, you just can't pay attention to that stuff. Uh, I mean, I mean, all praise is nice and all criticism is, is unfair and harsh, but beyond that, uh, you just have to do your job. Um, and, uh, and just hope, um, people appreciate the job you're doing.
2: I like how in your, uh, example of a headline, you said, uh, uh, Tapper smacks down blah, and I think I think blah is one way to discuss Kellyanne Conway. Well, I don't mean her; I just meant in,
4: insert name of <laughs> insert name of conservative or Republican or whatever. But but uh, yeah, I mean it is funny to see the same exact clip interpreted through the different filters. We had uh, Sebastian Gorka on the show the other day, um, and uh, you know the truth is I thought it was a fairly constructive interview i asked him questions he answered he made some news here and there i pushed back here and there i didn't really particularly think much of it one way or the other other than that he made news which is all really that's the my goal is to make news
2: how do you get kellyanne conway to say something newsy because it feels like when she's on there she's not really saying very much and it's always a frustrating interview so is it even worth interviewing her or do you have to just because of her official capacity well, I don't think I've. I'm.
4: I'm not saying this is a slam of Kellyanne Conway. I just. I don't think I've interviewed her since February, so um, you know, it's not. It's not an ongoing. She's not an ongoing, uh, frequent guest of mine. Um, you know, I, she does have a hand in presidential decisions. She does have a hand in especially uh, things having to do with veterans and the opioid crisis. So I suppose I could have her, and and those are areas of her expertise uh, that maybe we could find out and, and talk about. I mean, I really just do. I don't think you can make a lot of news with uh, the administration folks talking about – let's just – if we're saying that part one is policy and part two is Mm. the violation of norms, decency, and truth, so that's part two. So I think part two doesn't necessarily lend itself to news making so much. It does lend itself to maybe like good TV confrontations. But I prefer part one. I prefer the – what are the policies that are being implemented that are going to affect people one way or the other, whether it's healthcare or counterterrorism or, you know, things that the Justice Department is doing. So, you know, I, I think if the, the more I, I can focus on that um, in the interviews, the better because that's where the news is to be made. Although I think possibly part two is where the better, more viral TV is.
2: This is a very strange administration. We've never had this something like this before. It's clearly not normal. And I feel like, you know, there's going to be an accountability after after the fact, like who actually did their jobs, who actually asked the tough questions or, or like, you know, that Playboy reporter who actually like, you know, questioned the administration and, and the fact that, you know, that they were not being given information. Like, do you ever think about I am doing my job not only because I, I love my job and I have to do my job, but also because this is a time to, you know, where, where names are taken later? Um, I
4: think about my job in terms of. My kids are seven and nine, and someday they're going to read about this. And I want mm. them to be proud of the role that their father played. And I want to be able to say, mm. yes, my first interview was with Donald Trump in June 2015. Here's the transcript. You can see Daddy was asking tough but fair questions from the very beginning and calling into question um, you know these, these statements or these hypocrisies uh you know I, I want you to be I want them to be able to see that that their dad um, you know was asking some of the toughest questions out there uh, in the campaign, not just of Trump but of Hillary Clinton too um, but beyond that, I have to say i'm working on a novel right now um it 's a historical novel It takes place in nineteen fifty four and one of the things that reading about a historical period really makes you realize is how ephemeral any sort of fame is, uh, how ephemeral any sort of um, public respect is. Um, the the names of politicians and media personalities and businessmen in 1954, I could tell you and you would have no idea who they were. Or maybe you had heard the name, but you couldn't really tell me much about them. Um, and that is a very humbling thing because you realize uh, that how, 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 um, how ephemeral all of this is. Uh, so I don't expect that historically many of us will be, uh, remembered in the same way that, um, Walter Cronkite, for instance, is remembered. But, um, I do hope that, uh, those who, you know, spend a little time on Google, especially, uh, my kids,
1: uh, will at least, um, appreciate what we're trying to do here. It's funny you say that, Jake, because again, there's sort of I, there's a very sort of natural connection between journalists and comedians. Because I say the same thing about Lenny Bruce bits all the time. Like you can't listen to a Lenny Bruce routine from the late 50s, early 60s, and really understand what he's talking about because the names, the those people who were super famous in their day, you don't remember who they are or, or what space they took up. So I feel like it's very similar. Um, the other thing I would say is I appreciate the thing you say about being a dad because I think about my daughters all the time. Mine is six, and I one is six, and one is two and a half, and like. Just sort of imagining like what did dad do for a living? I sort of wanted to make sure that they feel proud of it. Not like he was doing that then, so I relate to that. And Dahari, I just want to say a child is like how you feel about your favorite coffee shop in Brooklyn. That's that's what a child is. <laughs> 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 how you feel oh, about oh, your favorite d- barista? That's the feeling of having a child. Oh, does your child
2: give you free coffee every morning?
1: <laughs> okay, maybe that's maybe yours is better. <laughs> <laughs> they're not makers, they're takers. That ah. Exactly. That's right. Uh So Hari references a little bit, Jake, about the idea of like you know the journalists. Like it's a hard time to be a journalist right now because the administration is treating journalists so differently than historically this country has. It's sort of you know you know and I think about Jim Acosta in the you know at the White House press briefings where they're not allow- they don't allow cameras sometimes. What do you think of that? And what do you think people from the outside are saying? This is what the journalists should do in that moment. They should turn on their cell phone cameras. They should stand up and turn around and walk out. What do you What do you think about that? And what do you think they should be done in those moments? It
4: you know it's it's a complicated question because um, the space is theirs. The space is the White House's. Um, the White House Correspondents' Association. That's ours. That's the media's. Um, and there is this agreement um, about. Uh, some of the decisions are the White House Correspondents' Association, and some of the decisions are the White House's. But ultimately, it's their house, um, and um, you know, if you, it's not really that complicated to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Um, they don't want to be the face of the scandal. Um, they have done more off-camera briefings uh, than they've done on-camera briefings uh, since uh, since the. Russia story got really, you know, thick. So let's just say, I think we looked at it in like a June 1st. And at June 1st, that's when they really started turning the cameras off. Um, one of the other complications with the frustration that people in TV feel is that our brothers and sisters in print and radio do not care. They don't care about this issue. And they outnumber us in the White House Correspondents Association um, because it doesn't affect their job. And probably some of them um, don't uh, particularly. You know, some of them probably think that some of the TV people uh, are more theatric in their question asking than than others. Hmm. So you know, it gets into a complicated. It gets into a complicated um, situation. I would say that you know, if I were there, then um, I would hope that every every um, briefing I would I would ask them, you know, please tell us why we can't turn on the TV cameras. I mean, I think that that should be asked every time. And I wish that print and radio people uh, would join with TV people in standing up against this, because then, you know, the next thing they're going to cut is the audio, and then the next thing they're going to cut after that is any sort of on-the-record briefing at all. Um, But, um, you know, people in journalism, uh, you know, the, the... the fellowship that should be uh, felt, um, uh, I find, is, is, uh, is lacking. Um, and uh, it's not just in this White House. I, you know, I recall when um, the Obama White House was, you know, trying to discredit and undermine all of Fox News, not just specific anchors or shows or reports, but the entire channel. And for people who watch Fox News, they know that you know, the great majority of daytime programming is basically just news. Um, <laughs> and um, there are a lot of good people who work at Fox News uh, back then and, and continue to. That's not to say I like everything they air. Obviously, quite a bit of what they air is criticizing me personally. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but when I stood up against that at the time, I thought it was odd that more people were not. Um, but the bottom line is that journalists can be a rather self-interested lot. And um, I think that that's one of the... Um, <laughs> that that's a that's a problem and uh we i saw it back then and i see it again here today
1: who knew that like print and radio journalism and television journalists were like east coast west coast rap beefers i didn't realize that and I as really I always so say, so- we're and as I always say, we're all in the same gang. If
2: the crack So since we all talk the same slang, stop killing
1: my brother, because we're all from the same <laughs> Oh, look at that. Look at that nineties hip hop reference. <laughs> <sighs> that's just that's delightful. That's delightful. He's not, he, he's not always thinking about Russia. I'm not. I listened to Backspin
4: on Sirius XM all the time and my (laughs) wife is very embarrassed by it and uh she's constantly telling me not to do it in public but i cannot stop listening to 80s 80s uh, 80s and 90s rap
1: we're making news here we got our guests to make some news hurry jake tapper listens to 80s and 90s (laughs) hip-hop to the embarrassment of his wife
2: jake what what major issues are are we missing because the russia scandal is so big or because you know tweets keep popping up like How much can you actually cover and what do you feel like should be covered that isn't getting as much attention because the Russia thing is so big?
4: Um, There's a lot, obviously, and I do we do try to cover it. But the Russia investigation, as you know, is such a is such a huge deal. Um, It crowds a lot of other news out. Um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is making a lot of changes uh, when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to marijuana laws, when it comes to, um, you know, the the sentencing reform uh, has uh, that has. It seems gone by the wayside. Um, so there are a lot of changes there that um, probably uh, should be getting a lot more coverage, definitely should be getting a lot more coverage. Um there's some um, – uh, the new VA secretary, David Shulkin, um, is bringing a lot of positive changes, it seems, from the outside to the VA, um, taking whistleblowers, investiga- uh, whistleblowers' complaints more seriously, uh, tr- trying to provide more transparency – uh, so that's a good news uh, story in a way that that probably should be getting more attention. There's, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, and there's there's never enough time to cover all the good, all, all the news you want to cover, good and bad. Do you
1: th- do you think Trump lasts four years? <laughs> like, do you think that like it, is it is or is it just going to be like this for the next four years or the next eight years? You know what I mean? Like it just seems like it's so hectic. I um I have
4: stopped predicting. Anything about President Trump. Uh, I think that is probably a good position for people <laughs> in the media. Uh, he has proven so many people wrong uh, about his ability to win the Republican nomination, his ability to win the presidency, how he's going to govern, what's he what he's going to say, what he's going to do. He is very impulsive. He is very unpredictable. Uh, one cannot look to previous presidents for any expectations of how this one will be, will act. Um, so I don't know. I'll say this: I don't see any evidence that he's not going to last four years, at the very least. And let me also say: tell me who's going to beat him, because that's that's I think an important question. A lot of Democrats are like, okay, well we only have to we only have three and a half years left. Okay, please tell me who is going to beat President Trump. Tell me who's going to take Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan back from him and put Florida and North Carolina back into play.
1: My my suggestion that we've talked about on the podcast before that people have talked about on the internet, President Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The Rock. I don't think he really wants to do it, but that would be a a very fun race. My bigger point is that do – is that where we're going? Like Kid Rock tweeted recently about you know sort of like teased that he might be running for Senate. But is that really where we're ultimately going to go through? Is that the celebrity – uh pre- celebrity presidential candidates do you think that's where this cuz those are the only people who can beat celebrities um i don't know i don't know um i mean i don't know that i mean is that the
4: way to beat trump to beat him on his own turf to to be uh just to be another um celebrity running um i don't know but i will i will notice that you haven't named any senators or governors or members of the house who you think can beat <laughs> donald trump
2: <laughs>
4: you're correct sir Yeah. I mean, this is just a little uh, observational thing in this interview, even though you're conducting the interview. I'm just saying, because because the truth of the matter is there isn't really a good answer to that question. I mean, the only thing I've heard, somebody hypothesized, well, what if Joe Biden announced that he was going to run? He says, I'm just going to run for one term. And then I'm just, I'm just, I just want to bring the country back to sanity, work with Republicans, get stuff done. And that's it. Let's, you know, let's do this America or something like that. And, And that's, that's fine, but um, he has run for president before, and it did not go very well uh, yeah. in 1988 and then again in 2008. So, you know, people, I think, forget that. Um, I don't know who the deus ex machina is for the Democrats in this, but I don't hear – I haven't heard any name of who's going to take the presidency back from the current one uh, for, as from the Democrats' perspective. So um, – You know, I think I think that would probably be a good focus for for Democrats in Washington and around the country is, um, you know, those pink hats are cute. But where is the big challenge going to come from?
2: Hold up. Wait a minute. But here are a couple of names that could be on that list. How
1: about Maxine Waters or Barbara Lee? Oh, yeah, that's the ticket. Lee and Waters, Waters and Lee, however they want to slice it. I'm all in.
4: When asked, the Democrats stand for something, or they basically just stand uh, uh, for opposing Trump. Fifty-three percent of the American people said they, they don't stand for anything; they stand for just opposing Trump. Which is not a
1: good—that's uh, not a good look for Democrats. People see that the Democrats is not standing for something; as just standing against Trump. If I'm yeah. right, 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 yeah, yeah exactly. Right. That, I, I that's mean, the
2: only issue that they're putting forward: is we have to get him out of office versus. Yeah,
4: well, tell me – I, mean, like, I mean, look, every dem- we hear every Democrat say about Obamacare, let's fix it. Let's not get rid of it. Let's fix it. Can you tell me one fix that they want to make? Well, I mean, like I'm, I'm, to- sure, yeah. I'm sure there's a list somewhere. I know that there are members of the House and Senate, Democrats, who after the House bill, the Republican House bill fell apart the first time, they wanted to come out that next day and say, here are the 10 fixes we need to make to Obamacare to save it. And they were told not to do that. Because it's easier to stand against something than it is to stand for something that's what Republicans did for years and now they're governing and look at look at what's going on but I mean are the Democrats running the risk of falling into that same situation well maybe they'll get real maybe they'll win the house back I don't know but but
2: I don't know you know as as a journalist who clearly prides uh, themselves on doing their job and, and you know when you talk about journalism clearly the, it, it comes with a with historical context and a value for, for the profession. When you are labeled fake news, when when all cable networks are labeled fake news, you know, how do you feel? Like, w- w- how does that frustrate you?
4: It doesn't personally frustrate me because it's so juvenile, but uh, it is part of a very nakedly transparent attempt to undermine people providing critical coverage Un- uncomfortable facts about this administration. There is an attempt to discredit people providing facts um, and oversight. But I'll tell you something. Of all the things that Donald Trump has said and done, um, the two that bother me the most are have nothing to do with him attacking my profession or even specifically CNN. It really, really bothered me when he went after John McCain um, and his war heroism. He said he was a hero because he was captured. I prefer people who weren't captured. That is such a dishonor to people who fight for this country and get captured by the enemy. It, it, I, can't even, I can't even express how much that, that offends me. Um, and, I, you know, I do a lot of veterans coverage and I do a lot of work with troops and veterans. And, and the idea of that, that glib comment about somebody who spent five and a half years in a POW camp who could have been released early uh, but chose not to. Um, because his dad was an admiral and he knew that it would um, provide uh, the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, with a, a PR victory. Oh, uh, that just bothers me so much. It's just so, it's so, um, it's so unpatriotic to say that. It's so unappreciative, especially for somebody who didn't serve himself. And then um, the other thing that really bothered me was when he made fun of um, that disabled reporter, mm. um, which everybody could see that he did. Um, and that that bothered me because I heard from children whom that bothered. Um, and the, who do, who knew nothing about the presidential race last year, except that Donald Trump made fun of a disabled person, which they know to be wrong. Um, and, and that bothered me too, because that was a debasing of decency in this society. So fake news, you know, that's just politics and that's him trying to undermine the free press because he doesn't like the facts that we are delivering. Um, uh, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, there is a large percentage of the population that um, believes him over their lying eyes, but uh, but that that is what it is. But going after POWs and the disabled, that just, that just still to this day, just gets me really personally upset.
1: Well, thank you for taking time out of your day to come talk to us. We really appreciate it, Jake.
2: Yeah, thank you, Jake. Thank
4: you, guys. I appreciate you. Keep up the great work. I'm glad you guys are back for another season. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and, and I promise if I win that, Emmy, I'll let you touch it. Just a uh, – maybe here's the thing when your kid ultimately drops it and a piece falls off (laughs) if you could just send
1: the chip if
4: you could just i'll give it i'll
1: give it a place of honor in my office okay that's that's all i ask i like that you're you're sort of invoking the fact that my kid's going to drop the emmy and i know which kid is going to do it too so thanks for that well i
4: mean you you have children so i know
2: that it will happen it's just a question of when yeah all right well thank you
1: sir Come what did you learn today? I learned that Jessica is a disruptor and you have to be a disruptor when you want to change something that is, is entrenched as the Democratic Party.
2: I learned that a basic rule Jessica sticks by for deciding if she's going to help you on your campaign is, quote, do you love black people?
3: That's, that's fair. <laughs> that is a very reasonable question.
2: That's totally reasonable. Okay.
1: So, hard. do you love black people? Yes. Okay, good. Why'd you answer so slowly? Yes. Okay, better. I learned that for Jessica to support you in running for office, there are some must-haves. You must have integrity, honesty, love for the people, and an analysis of how public policy is happening in your community. And then there are some nice-to-haves, some experience running, and a fundraising strategy connected to millionaires. <laughs> That's probably more closer to a must-have. She just feels like you can't expect everybody to know millionaires. Right.
2: I also learned that if you want to be a politician with integrity, you need to have an actual connection to the community you want to serve. That is how the community knows you care and love them, because you're actually doing the work in the community.
1: I also learned that Jessica wholeheartedly preaches the ancient black woman proverb, if it doesn't exist, fuck it, I'll build it. So, hurry, what did you learn from Jake Tapper today? I learned that Jake is a
2: big fan of 80s and 90s hip-hop. I realized we talked about more important things, but that was pretty shocking. I had no idea. I should have thrown some tribe references in there. I, I didn't know.
1: I learned that Jake's job is to not actually report the news, but to get his guests in interviews to make news. Did we make any news in this interview, Hurry? I'm, I'm pretty sure we made some news because, uh, you know, we kind of talked about Jake in the, a
2: couple of podcasts back. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, so he, he did kind of make news. Yeah. At least on the podcast. Yeah. I learned that TV people and newspaper people don't always get along. TV people bring the drama. They want cameras on them all the time. Newspaper people, they use their words. I guess I'm more of a newspaper person because you're a TV person. Yeah, that's 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 what's happening. New divisions, everybody.
1: <laughs> hey, Harry, we recorded this one so much in advance. Maybe it's possible by the time this comes out, Trump's not an office anymore.
2: Huh, should we record some fake ones then in case uh, somebody else? I learned that our podcast was a... Big factor in taking down the Trump administration. I learned that Mike Pence learned a lot from our podcast, so his administration is going to be significantly different than the previous one.
1: Oh, the Mike Pence administration.
2: There's no winning, Kamal. There's no winning. This goes deep. You knew that. Even if Hillary won, this goes deep. Even if Jill Stein won. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hey, Twitter uh, Mentions. uh, Nice to see you again, Twitter uh, Mentions.
1: Fuck you, Twitter Mentions. We laugh. That's going to do it for our show. Thanks again to CNN's Jake Tapper. And if you want more Jake Tapper, then every day, Monday through Friday, watch The Lead with Jake Tapper. And then on Sunday, you can watch his Sunday morning show, State of the Union. To keep up with Jake, follow him on Twitter, at Jake Tapper. And you can follow Jessica Bird. And who wouldn't want to follow Jessica Bird? We should really all just go follow Jessica Bird at Jessica L. Bird. That's J E S S I C A L B Y R D. At Jessica L. Bird. Everybody, go follow Jessica Bird. And again, we got new t shirts. Visit podswag.com slash PR or podswag.com slash politically reactive to get the new t shirts. Yes, we're turning up the heat to get women's sizes and kids' tees. We listen to you. We hear you.
2: We also have another live show coming up. We'll be at the Now Hear This podcast festival in New York City. Our show is on Saturday, September 9th. You can find tickets at nowhearthisfest.com.
1: And also, my book, still new, Essence said it's one of the books of the summer. Hey! Pick up my book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, at your local bookstore, if you still have a local bookstore, or you can get it from wkamaubell.com. Support your local bookstore.
2: And as you probably know, I have several albums out. You can find them uh, on the internet. The internet will never run out of them because, uh, you know, they're digital. You can also check out hurrykundabolu.com for more information. Listen to them. They're great. I made them. I know. You can also catch me live in San Diego, California at the American Comedy Company, August 18th through the 20th, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Helium Comedy Club, August 24th to the 26th, Baltimore, Maryland at Creative Alliance 2 shows, August 27th, Portland, Maine at the Aura, August 30th, Burlington, Vermont at Vermont Comedy Club, August 31st through September 2nd, then we got some big ones, Boston Mass at the Wilbur, November 3rd. Oakland, California, at the beautiful Fox Theater on December first.
1: Wait a minute, you're playing the Fox? I, I'm shocked too. I just opened for the Roots at the Fox. I, the place I opened for another group. You're actually headlining yourself? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oakland turnout.
2: Yeah, we. I, I'm gonna need. We might have some special guests if. Kamal Saran <laughs> <laughs> if i <I'm in> town <laughs> if I happen to be in town yes I yes. feel like whenever we say special gets like oh it's going to be yeah it's going to be <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Santa Cruz I'm there November 30th also Eugene, Oregon November 16th in Tacoma, Washington November 18th all of that is on hurricundabolu.com also a couple of quick side announcements for those of you in Seattle, Washington the legendary Dwayne Kennedy wow Yeah, the legendary Dwayne Kennedy. From Totally Biased. From Totally Biased, one of our great friends. August 10th and 11th at the Jewel Box Theater at the Rendezvous in Seattle. Go to those shows. Dwayne Kennedy. That's a rare show. That's that, a rare sighting of
1: Dwayne
0: Kennedy. Uh,
2: have him getting off his couch, him being in another city doing comedy yeah. where he's not opening for you or I.
1: Yeah, that's a big deal. That's Get a those big tickets. Deal. Those are like limited edition. <laughs> 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 and also, buy my album, semi Prominent Negro from yes. Kill Rock Stars. Yes. Let's just keep doing that. Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Leingang and Letal Malad. The show is produced by Max Jacobs, Laura Flynn, and Phil Circus. The show is engineered by Dan Gallucci.
2: Thanks to Greg Francis and Studio Discreet for helping us record this week. And thanks, as always, to Brontes Purnell for providing music for the show.
3: Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.